Hi, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of Stupid Questions, the podcast. My name is Dean. My name is Carrie. Today, we're going to start actually with a two-parter. But first, let's just tell you a little bit about us if you haven't listened to the intro. This podcast is going to ask stupid questions that aren't really that stupid, I guess, but we like the title. But it's, <laughs> it's stuff that we you probably think you should know the answer to or be able to explain, but then try to explain it and you can't or you don't remember or you realize you don't know the answer, even though you feel like you should. Like algorithms, we use that as a good example. Everybody hears them, everybody talks about them, you hear them used in the media about tech every day, but what the hell are they? What do they actually do? How do they do their magic? Right? I, have, I have no idea. I don't either. We'll, we'll, <laughs> when we do that show, we'll find out. We'll, Hopefully one of we'll us keep, is going to research that. We'll keep one episode <laughs> ahead, trust me. So today, we're going to actually have part one of U.S. presidential elections. And trust us, this is not going to be a political podcast. It's just what we started with. We're going to do everything you can imagine. We'll do movies. We'll do science stuff. We'll do lame stuff. I mean, lame is not a good word, but you know, we're, we're not going to do just political stuff. Well, we are going to start out with the obvious huge story of the election coming up. We thought we'd start with that because a lot of people have a lot of questions about, you know, what's the electoral college? What can they do? Yes. Things like that. We're going to answer that for you here in these, this episode and in the next episode that you could listen to right now because we're going to upload them both simultaneously. And also we're going to be talking about how presidential elections work but it's going to kind of be how normal presidential elections yes, work. I'm not so is. sure 2020 is going to be a normal presidential we'll, we'll election. We'll end with a discussion of exactly that. Yeah. Okay. So, you ready? Yeah. Ask me a question that I have done no research on whatsoever. Go. Well, here's one. Why are Republicans red and Democrats blue? Funny you should ask that. Actually, that right, modern times, we always think of red Republicans, blue Democrats, Blue states, red states, if it's mixed, it's called a purple state, right? A mix of purple, sure. of red, and blue. Makes sense. Let's go back to 1976. John Chancellor. Do you remember him? Nope. Old-timey newsman. Oh. NBC News. Vaguely. Old-timey from the 70s and 60s, I think, <laughs> maybe, probably into the 80s, but old-timey. He was going to be at the anchor desk there for NBC News in the Carter Ford presidential election. He said, hey, guys, technical guys, graphics guys, whatever, I want a big old map behind me, and I want it to light up when we call a state, which, by the way, spoiler alert, we're going to talk about in a little bit. If, if uh, Republicans win a state and we call it, it's going to light up one color. Democrats, it's going to light up another color, and we'll, it'll just be a great graphic, great visual, right? Sure. So, and it's going to use tiny little lights to do so. And for no reason that anybody can remember, they went with, uh-uh, uh-uh, they went with red Democrat, yeah. blue, Republican. In fact, for a long time, that was probably a little bit more the norm. But in reality, the networks would s actually switch amongst themselves from one election to the next. Or, and the different media used a different color. It mostly was red and blue, just because that's very stark and very, it looked good. Oh, and red, and white, and blue. Red, white, and blue, yeah. exactly. So there was no uniformity to it, though, for quite some time. Now, fast forward to 2000. It's a contested election. George Bush versus Al Gore. I remember it well. You do. Okay, you sound sad. Uh, Don't be sad. <laughs> when It's a long time ago. When the election was over, it wasn't really over. Now, was it? We had all those hanging chads, and with those hanging chads, we had the election in the news every day for weeks. 
the media, pretty quickly on, really just not just a few days after the election, the media wanted to kind of just show maps because they, they were minutely dissecting county by county, even precinct by, by precinct, the vote totals as they were tallying and retallying the votes coming in from Florida, right? Right. So both the New York Times and the USA Today simultaneously on the same day without any planning of this whatsoever, they both decided to show a color-coded map of Florida showing a co one color for this is a Democratic, with Democrats winning here and another color for the Republicans winning here. For whatever reason, they both chose red for Republican and blue for Democrat. Really? So it wasn't until 2020 that this was? T 2000. Oh, t yeah, 2000 mm. that this was kind of set? That it became norm. In fact, really, if you think about it, not until 2004, that everybody fell in line. Because in two, remember, in 2000, different people did different things. Yeah. But people started talking, okay, hey, look at the red on that, on yeah. that map. Look at the blue on that map. And it lasted for weeks. I was going to say it was literally all day, every day yeah. on the news for the most part. It was like the OJ trial mm -hmm. for about three or four weeks. Yeah. And it seared into the mind of Americans Res Republican, Blues Democrat, huh. and that's it. Not my mind. You didn't? <laughs> no. I mean, I remember it being on the news. In fact, I remember they brought TVs into our office, and there were TVs all over the place, and they had it on all the time. And you don't? Okay. I, yeah. I, well, I, I was working. You know, I, so. that's a good question. I'm not sure. I started using the terminology red, Republican, blue, yeah. Democrat at that time, probably not until the next election, actually. I don't know for a yeah. fact. In, in terms of, the, of how that happened, at least for the New York Times, their senior graphics person who made that decision, who made the map, quote, I just, I just decided red begins with R, Republican begins with yeah. R. It was a natural association. There wasn't much much discussion about it. Yeah. So it wasn't like it was some... Because some uh, Republicans will later get a little pissy about that because they thought red is communist, damn it. We're oh, not God. communists. So uh, there was an, uh, in 2004, I can't remember who it was, some big Republican operative wrote an op-ed piece and said, wait, hold on. This is not... I don't like this. Let's not do this. Too late. Yeah. And that ship had sailed. Well, so along those same lines, why are... Republicans, the Republican symbol, a donkey, and why is Democrats an elephant? Or do I have it backwards? Uh, you have it backwards. Oh, okay. But way to throw one out there that I wasn't ready for, which I can ask. I think I've read that that's mostly the cartoons in the, in the later 19th century of Thomas Nast, a very famous political, political cartoonist, who I don't know, I can't tell you the reasons why. And they just stuck? But he, Exactly. He just yeah. started representing Democrats as a donkey, because they're asses, yeah. and Republicans is, I think, kind of plutocratic, you know, rich, fat Republicans kind of a yeah. thing as an elephant. And, you know, those symbols, they used to be used a whole lot more than they are these yeah. days. They really aren't used no. that much anymore. It, it, it colors. Now it's red and yeah. blue, honestly. And it's sometimes you'll see yellow for like a toss-up state, or sometimes they use yellow for Ross Perot if he won any states in 1992 oh, really? and 96. They were going to use yellow, or some of the networks were going to use yellow for Ross Perot. But you know, you also might ask the question: If the Green Party ever wins a state, would it be showed up as green? <laughs> I think the answer well, is should. yes, but we'll never know <laughs> because it's not ever going to happen. Well, what color would my party, the Peace and Freedom Party, the be? Peace and Freedom Party, good lord, uh, pink. I have no idea. I don't know. It's not, again nothing rainbow. you need to worry about. It'd be a rainbow color. The only thing the Green Party is good for is throwing <laughs> elections to the Republicans. So yeah. Any other questions for me, Kara? 
Yes. How much money is spent on presidential elections and why? <laughs> well, the why is because they want to win and money wins elections. The short answer, though, to the first part is a shit ton. Very, a ton of money is spent. It's a multi-billion dollar industry, cumulatively. First, though, we're going to note that the different sor- different sources I read cite different numbers, so it's not as, as clear as you might think it is, but I'll, I, I'll go with, oh gosh, <laughs> I've forgotten the source, but they're all pretty close. So let's do a little bit of history. 1992, let's stick with presidential elections. I have data at hand for that. There, 195.6 billion, I'm sorry, million dollars was spent by the campaigns in the 92 election. Oh, okay. I was going to say that doesn't seem like very much, but no, okay. Well, it, yeah. it is a lot of money, but, but yeah. a long time ago. That is about, by the way, about $360 million adjusted to today's dollars. So wow. it was a significant spend, but no, yeah. yeah, but they're just getting warmed up. And by 2000, this had ballooned to $345 million in $2,000. Then in 2008, this skyrocketed to $1.1 billion, with a B, dollars. Jeez. In that election, election, by the way, with about a two-to-one split in favor of Barack Obama, the Democrat, by the way, usually Republicans outspent yeah. uh, Democrats until until Barack Obama tapped into a small donor base and also did well with Wall Street and some other major donors that had most Democrats had not. Bill Clinton actually was was able to raise quite a bit of money and be. I think he may actually he may have outspent Bob Dole or at least was very close. In 2012, Obama spent by himself $742 million. Oh, my god! But allied Democratic PACs and groups like that raised the total total for Democrats to $1.14 billion. Just Mitt, for Obama. Just for Obama. Mitt Romney spent less from his own campaign than Obama's $740 million, but Republican other allied Republican groups spent a ton, and so the Republican cumulative total was about one point two five. So in that election, they wow. were very, very, very even in the Romney versus yeah. uh, Obama 2012. 2016, the combined two-party total was a staggering $2.4 billion, so more than 2012. Again, the Democrat actually spent a little more. Hillary Clinton, at the end of the day, probably spent a little more. The, the, the Clinton campaign directly spent far more than the Trump campaign directly, but again, Republicans had a lot more money coming in from allied groups, things like political right. action committees and dark and semi-dark money, things like that. So, But again, most by most accounting, Hillary spent probably a little more than, than Donald Trump and still lost. So I have another question. Yes. We don't hear about it very often anymore. But we used to, and there's a little section on our tax returns every year asking us if we want to give a dollar or oh, two dollars, three dollars yeah. to the to the presidential campaign mm-hmm. fund or whatever. So, what is the the public financing of presidential campaign option? I will answer that in a little bit, <coughs> but I promise I'll answer it. Okay. Okay. Going back to to this year to 1920, and I'm sorry, 2020. <laughs> Michael Bloomberg spent a billion dollars by some estimates, $558 million just on advertisements, just on media, paid media, to win the American Samoa (laughs) caucuses, Democratic caucuses, and a a handful of delegates, a billion dollars he spent to essentially lose badly. Didn't he keep spending that? Tom Steyer, just in these past primary elections for the Democrats, spent, he's another 
billionaire who's self-funded, he spent $267 million to win not even the American yeah. Samoa caucuses. He won nothing whatsoever. I think he might have had a, hand, a couple of delegates. I don't know. It's too early, really, to get a really good sense of how much Trump and Biden are spending here in 2020 overall. But I found an article from NPR just from a few days ago, and it, it, its tally was that the Biden campaign had raised $633 million to date. And it, it wasn't super up to date, but I think it was about a month uh, in terms of their, their numbers were about a month old. Yeah. Trump's campaign had raised $1.08 billion. So Trump is, is oh, yes. collecting some serious cash. Updated oh. numbers from just the month of June, however, sh showed that Biden would actually outraise Trump slightly in that month and had closed the cash on hand gap to both a little over $100 million. So he's caught up a little bit. Basically what happened is that Trump has had to spend a lot of that money he's raised on really places and, and at volumes they did not expect to have to spend, places like Texas and Georgia and Ohio, states that they thought they were going to win handily where they're either behind or very, very close in the polls. They've been spending a lot of money there, the Trump campaign has. So it's, it's eaten into that huge um, money advantage he had uh, over Biden earlier on. Yeah. I mean, there's going to be, you know, someone's got to pay for bad Parscale's Ferrari, so the Trump campaign <laughs> is going to continue to spend a, a ton of money. They'll spend what I mean. They'll spend. It's almost certain to break the all-time record in total yeah, spending from, all, from yeah, yeah. 2016. It's clearly going to do that. I guess I should uh, send Biden the ten dollars he keeps asking me for. Really? Okay. <laughs> and then you can send uh, Trump twenty bucks to uh, to you know, or just buy some of Ivanka's goods and services. I'll buy bu some Goya. I'll buy you a MAGA hat. Okay. Thanks. I'll wear it proudly. <laughs> hey, Dean, where does all that money come from? <laughs> okay, I'll tell you. And where does it go? I mean, how do they, you know, how do they spend it? How do they spend it? Well, the short answer for the where does it come from is lots of rich people. Not, not as dominated as it used to be. Thanks really mainly to Obama and the internet. I was going to say, isn't that changing? Yeah, it's changing and, and, Small donations have become more and more important all the time. But incredibly rich people like billionaires give uh, as much as they want to these things called the 501Cs. They're, they're sort of, they're quasi, they're supposed to be like political charities. I don't know if they're not right where, but nonprofits that do nonpartisan things like get out the vote and stuff like that and aren't supposed to coordinate with any of the, of the campaigns. That, of course, is a, is a ludicrous fiction. They're completely partisan. You, and some of them, you don't have to even say who their donors are. So that's what, what, what dark money is. So these billionaires are multi-multi-millionaires give tons and tons of money to these groups. And they then, of course, on the sly, coordinate with one of the other campaign. Both parties do it. And spend unlimited cash and to... And these are, these are groups like that have seemingly patriotic names yes. like... Taxpayers for the American exactly. way. Exactly. <laughs> and they're just talking about, you know, they'll do some kind of negative ad against the, their person's opponent, or they'll try to promote an issue that they think helps their candidate, things like that. Are they technically not supposed to be advocating for a certain candidate? They're, they're absolutely, are, very specifically, not supposed to be advocating or coordinating, or at least not coordinating. Not with coordinating, with but yes. is it okay to say... I, you know, I, I, Donald you know Trump will do this for us. Yes, yes, but I don't know. I don't know if they can make it a, an appeal like vote for Donald Trump. Yeah, you know, they, and they don't. They usually, they usually do not do that. They they want to keep this kind of veneer of we're just saying that abortion is evil, 
and they know that's going to but help Donald Trump they, or, you know, or whatever. You know, but Trump didn't they is also evil do and, like Hillary Clinton is evil? Of course. Okay. We I mean, so. have lots of pictures to show that she is. Yes. Because I she know. does have a lot of pictures where she does look a little bit evil. They're out there. Trust me. I've seen it. I'm sure there's pictures of me that make me look evil. Yeah. You know what? I wasn't going to say anything, but now that you bring it up, there's there's a couple. And there are about a million pictures of Donald Trump that make him look dumb. Uh, But not his hair. His hair always looks spot on. (laughs) Comb from the nape of the neck. Flying wildly. Yeah. (laughs) So wealthy people still have an extraordinarily major impact on where the money comes from. All this, by the way, is brought to us by the infamous Citizens United Supreme Court case that essentially struck down almost all campaign finance laws with respect to these independent committees, these 501Cs and other groups like that. And it led entirely predictably to this mass, mass infusion of cash of rich people and corporations I was gonna that say, otherwise yeah. were not allowed to. And unions too. Because corporations and unions are still to this day not allowed to give directly to candidates. You can't do that. And there are limits on what you can give directly to candidates, like $2,800 per cycle and things like that. Right. But um, you, again, you just use these independent committees to get around that and pour millions, millions and millions and millions. So corporations and rich people can give unlimited amounts of money to yes. the other groups. Sheldon Adelson, a casino mogul from Las Vegas gave, by some estimates, no one knows, because a, a lot of it's dark money, 50 to $100 million to the Trump campaign in 2016. I got a question. What about public corporations? Don't, do they not, wouldn't they have to disclose to like their shareholders? Yes, public, absolutely. Okay. So it's a little stickier for those guys. They do. They do it all the time, but it has to be exposed because it, it's part of their right. filings. Yeah. Okay. So corporations and unions don't donate directly, but they do so through these these independent groups that, again, aren't supposed to to coordinate with any candidate. But if you believe that, then you might also believe the Earth is flat. Oh, no, you might believe that COVID is a Chinese plot from Bill Gates. Oh, wait a second. You might actually believe that because some people do. (laughs) So I shouldn't say that. Increasingly, though, candidates have been able, as we talked about, to use the Internet to tap into these small donor networks. Bernie Sanders, I mean, vastly outraced Joe Biden, for instance, and all the other candidates in the primaries through exactly that. Yeah. He wasn't getting a bunch of big corporate or fat cat kind of donations. He was getting donations from every hipster who gave up that um, kombucha to give those 750 to Bernie. I'm, doing, I'm, I'm, I'm playing in stereotypes there that are yeah, very true, and you know it. I mean, they sold their net cap. And they gave that money to Bernie as well. <laughs> you know they did. They, even, they Sometimes they shave their <laughs> beards, or at least you know the, bottom, what, the sold, bottom 11 inches of their beards. Sold the hair. And they'd sell the hair <laughs> to give to Bernie is what happened in my, in my uh, world, in my stereotype. So that's, that's been changing things, and that's hopefully going to happen more and more. It's, it's amazing. I mean, those, those little contributions total up to hundreds of millions of dollars in, yeah. in these large presidential campaigns. And both parties do this. And, bo- and by the way, both parties coordinate with these independent groups. Again, there has been more on the Republican side in these recent elections post Citizen United because they're more in favor of kind of a corporate agenda, and that's our billionaires tend to be mostly our Republicans. There are there are Democratic billionaires like George Soros who is funding every nefarious scheme across the globe, especially Antifa. Yeah, but there are more of them who are Republicans, and, and you know, because they, they want lower taxes and no regulation, and so that's not surprising. And again, this, when the Supreme Court made that decision, they knew exactly what was going to happen. 
they're, and they're, they're okay with it. By the way, the presidential elections, to answer your question from before, from 1976 to 2004, 1976, you know, this was post-Watergate. There's what, in Watergate, 1972, Nixon re-election, one of the scandals that kind of got, didn't get a lot of attention because there's other bigger scandals was that he did a lot of illegal money. He was getting some foreign oh. money. He was getting, like, they got like a million dollars from the IT&T Corporation on the sly, things like that. So they tried to do some campaign finance reform, and part of that was that you, at first a dollar, you checked off a dollar, you give a dollar to the presidential fund, and the two, and any candidate who qualified, and there's, there's thresholds to qualify, would get a certain amount of money, they'd get an equal amount of money to run the campaigns. In 1976 through 2004, both candidates for the presidency did exactly that and got public money, and they spent directly public money. Again, there was still plenty of money being spent by PACs and other groups. It wasn't as bad as today, but there was still lots of that going on. But each candidate, their actual campaign could only spend the public money they got? Correct. Wow. That's exactly why Barack Obama blew it up in 2008. He realized, he knew how, about how much the, the amount of money would be that he could spend. He said, I think I can raise that and then some. Yeah. So screw the public money. And he said, "I'm not because if you don't take it, you don't have to be bound by those restrictions on how much you can spend. Okay. And, and, and it's also timing when you can spend it. Was he the first candidate that did that? He was. The really? Fir- the first major candidate who did that. I Ross Perot in 92 spent his own money right. because he had to. He wasn't. He didn't qualify. His party in 1996 did qualify, though, by the way. But yes, wow. he was the first major two-party candidate to do that in 2008 because he, he, he already had tapped into a major donor network through the primaries. So yeah. he knew he was going to be able to collect a lot of money. So he dropped it, and every other major candidate has dropped, has not used the... I think McCain might have used it in 08, but no one's ever used it since. So both candidates don't have to agree. One can do it and the other one doesn't have to? Correct. The other one could, could tap into it and say, okay, I'll, I'll take that money, but they don't because they all they right. know now they can use, they can, they can gather more money, they can raise more, more money than that is going to be in that fund. Does that fund only come from people who opt in on their taxes? Yeah, it's now three bucks. So there's no, no, no other tax money goes into it? I no. mean, no. Hmm. Wow. So yeah, they can easily outraise that. So they already how, have. How much is in the fund <laughs> this year? Twenty four dollars. Yeah, yeah. Who would who would check that off anymore? They know no presidential candidate is using it. Although I used to always check it off. You can you can tap into it during the primaries. In fact, Martin O'Malley, the governor of, uh, of Maryland, did tap into some of those funds during the prime early on in the primaries. Really? Yeah. I can't remember. I don't know the the scenario or, yeah. or the qualifications for the hurdles, but you can do that. But it's almost never. It's just not even in primaries are they using that. They know that there's so much money out there. Do you know what politics. happens to that money if it doesn't get used? <sighs> I think we. I think we should get it. I think. I think it should go to a Patreon for this podcast. <laughs> I'm just. I'm just saying, federal government. I'll take that twenty four dollars. Twenty four bucks. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, it's all private money now, and will be for the foreseeable future, and a lot of it. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, so now we're going to talk about something that is in the news actually a lot, I would say, on a daily basis. Going to switch gears? Yes. All right. Voter fraud. Mm. What is it? How common (laughs) is it? Uh, And and like, okay, yeah, go go ahead. ahead. Well, I was going to say, and we hear voter fraud and election fraud, and, you know, are they... The same thing, or not what? exactly. The election fraud. I mean, election fraud can be a lot of different things. It can be like, uh, like voter intimidation. That's election fraud. 
It can be outright vote buying, which is, I guess, kind of both. It can be illegally denying someone the right to vote. It can be disinformation, though, which is more electoral fraud. Fraud like like how to vote. Like the, I can't remember. I, I, I'm going to say, it was, in fact, it was. Republicans a few times have sent out pamphlets and things like that to people saying, don't forget to vote on November 10th yeah. or when, when the vote was November you know, was before was before that things like that. That technically is is electoral fraud and it's illegal. Okay, how about this? I remember hearing about places where, in areas with like a high Hispanic population, mm-hmm. somebody would, you know, like a rich person, not not a campaign or something, but a rich person would rent a billboard and post something warning about mm-hmm. voter fraud. Yeah, it's illegal to vote. You know. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. certain they did what that. the penalties for voter fraud yeah. are, and and they would they would have people waiting, look like security guards or things like that, police ish yes. looking people at actual nearby to uh, voting. So basically, intimidation. Yeah. is that technically election fraud? It, it can be. It becomes a gray area because no, yeah. we weren't doing that. We're just we're just saying. I, I remember when, when this is in the '80s in Orange County, there was a case where they did they they hired security guards to go in, the, in a security guard uniform, but looked a lot like a police. Yeah. Uniform and go hang out in front of ballot voting booths, yeah. voting stations, and it, and they said no, you're not going to do that. They basically got, they basically just sort of slapped them on the wrist and said don't do it again, and they didn't. But they were able to make them stop by saying that can be construed as election fraud, and you can't, and we can oh, okay. put you in jail. Is is voter intimidation a crime? Absolutely. Okay. But the way we think of it now really is more kind of voting illegally, right? Like, uh, like voting outside your district or voting when you're not allowed to vote or faking ballots, stealing ballots, uh, or, or the biggest one probably is voter impersonation. Well, like how Trump said there were 3 million yes. illegal votes uh-huh. in 2016. Yes, he went with whatever number was more than the number he <laughs> lost by. He, he, I'm, I'm not even kidding. He first said like two million, and then he found out he lost by three million. He said, "Okay, it was five. So is he? I'm assuming he's meaning undocumented he does. immigrants. Yes, voting. Yes, and okay. obviously all of our literally 100 percent for Hillary Clinton. Yeah. So President Trump has alleged all these things, by the way, in terms of, of voting fraud, that, and that they're going to happen against him. That it, things like Democrats have and will use illegal immigrants to vote for them. That the Chinese are going to print millions of ballots and mail them in. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a minute. How embarrassingly ludicrous that is that more more recently he said that there's there's going to be mass mail vote fraud and that's making i mean he's guaranteed it he said it's, it's a certainty it's going to happen it's going to be terrible it's going to be the most rigged election ever and we'll argue in the next episode uh, i will anyway that i i think i I have an idea what his motivation for doing that is. A lot of people do. But anyway, voter impersonation, pretending you're someone you're not in voting, is one of the things that is under discussion, is, is being attacked right now. The whole voter ID laws come from people right, yeah. thinking people do that. So how common is it? How common is any kind of voter fraud whatsoever, right? That's, again, a very easy answer. It's not very, as in almost never. Yeah. As in really never enough to have ever mattered in a modern election, literally. Right. It's just, it's, it's, no one's worried about it. It's not a thing. Out of 50 secretaries of state, 50 will tell you there's not an issue whatsoever with voter fraud, with mail-in or any other kind. Well, could an argument be made that 
maybe some group was so successful at it that they never got caught. You can make that argument for literally everything, <laughs> anywhere, anytime. So, but no, no, because because they because in, in the time they have caught it when it has occurred on on a small scale. We'll, yeah. we'll talk about that in a minute. In North Carolina, where it was caught, they did a study in 2017 looking at the 2016 vote. And out of 4.7 million, I'm sorry, 4.77 million votes cast, almost 500 were illegal. Virtually oh. every one of those, which is more than you think and is more than normally is true, but virtually all of those were people convicted of felonies on probation who didn't realize they could not vote while on probation. Oh, okay. And so it was accidental. In no way did they change any kind of, of an outcome. So they successfully registered to vote. Yeah, they did. They, they have an issue there in North Carolina. So the registrar that voters. number is much higher than any other study has found. Oh, okay. So, for instance, uh, oh, I can't remember, I can't remember the group, but it, they did a 2016 election, an analysis of the 2016 election. Remember that Trump said had been riddled with illegal voting, right, and and voter fraud. I mean, literally millions of illegal votes, right? Yeah. And this analysis found fewer than 30 instances of possible non-citizen voting out of 23.5 million votes in the 42 jurisdictions that they sampled. So they sampled a bunch of jurisdictions. In fact, they sampled jurisdictions with high proportions of non-citizens. To So on the, right. on the idea that if there is any, if this is going on, that's what will go on. Of those 42 million votes they looked at, uh, I'm sorry, the 23.5 million votes they looked at, they, ha- they found fewer than 30 instances of possible voter fraud. That's a 0.0001% rate. Yeah. I mean, it's... Is laughable. And, and again, not even those 30 cases were absolute. They're just suspected. suspected. Yeah. Yeah, because how could a non-citizen register? Yes. Yes. And, and, and the simple fact is they don't. Yeah. And, and, and they're not going to legally be able to do so in, in almost every instance. Yeah. Every election, again, every election official in every state, Republican or Democrat, will say the same thing. Voting fraud is infinitesimal. It's not important. It's not something we need to be worried about. Right. We, we have the mechanisms in place. Right. So it's not happening. Again, Donald Trump has said literally it has happened and is guaranteed to happen right. on a mass scale. And that's just that's, that's literally like saying the world is not just flat, but, I don't know, inverted. I mean, it's so far, it's not just sort of a shade of the truth. Are, are a slight exaggeration. It's a ludicrous, nonsensical non-starter. Well, so then why all the push for mm, voter ID laws? That's well, well, well. Let's let's talk about that in a second as okay. well. But there is a reason for that. When you look at real science, unequivocally, that's so the studies I've cited are just the tip of the iceberg. There's many, many studies. They all show the exact same thing. Voting fraud is incredibly rare. The Advocates of fraud have used, though, junk science to justify their claims that there's a lot of fraud going on. So there was a national survey done, uh, national respondents, to gauge their interactions with the congressional elections of 2016. Not just how they voted, but lots of things. How was their experience doing that? Or not even if they, they voted, right? It's just asking people, random sample of Americans, or people in America that they were, they were contacting, various questions about the congressional elections, right? A very small number of those respondents were misclassified as non-citizens, right? So these two academics at Old Dominion University, their names, I want to say their names because they deserve the shame they should get, Jesse Richmond and David Ernest, they used this, this bad data, let's be honest, to extrapolate to the population at large, and their big headline was that 14% of all non-citizens in the United States voted in the presidential election of 2016. 
14%. That wow. equaled like three to five million potentially. Yeah. A huge number. Here's what happened though. And I don't have these numbers on exact, but they're probably something like it. There are, let's say there are 12 non-citizens who responded to this poll, right? This survey, I should say. And they all said, no, of course we didn't vote in the presidential election, but they're still asked other questions about the congressional elections, right? Yeah. But no, we didn't vote. We're not citizens. We can't vote and we're not registered. Two people who did vote and were actual U.S. citizens were misclassified as non-citizens. That means now you think you have 14 non-citizens, we really have 12, and that two of them didn't vote. Again, these exact numbers might be different, but it's something like this. That's 14%. So these two knuckleheads at ODU say, okay then, 14%, therefore, using our powers of science and probability that, and, and apparently they have PhDs that they should have revoked, <laughs> said, said that, that therefore that extrapolates into you know, millions of non-citizens voted in 2016. Republicans have ballyhooed that, and yeah. Trump has, and oh, Stephen okay. Miller have, have, have talked about that incessantly. It's utter nonsense. They just made a stupid error. They didn't realize that you have misclassifications in survey results all the time. It happens. Data yeah. are, are never perfect. So... They're the two worst political scientists in the world, <laughs> and they should be embarrassed and ashamed. And they're, I honestly, I don't know if they did it with a political agenda or just like, hey, look at this. No way. I didn't notice. They, you know, they're data mining, and they see this and go, hey, we can get a headline with that. We can get some attention. We'll, we'll be yeah. in the paper. So I don't know. Or they were yeah. advocates. The biggest vote fraud case recent times was in North Carolina again. It was yeah. in actually the Republican primary for a House seat. So Republican versus Republican for a House seat in North Carolina, and this involved uh, just this, this hack local political operative being hired by one of those two Republican candidates. The, the candidate was Mark Harris. He hired him to do various political on-the-ground stuff for him. This included, at least according to the guy who did it, I can't remember his name, by the way. It was uh, Knowles, something Knowles. It included things like gathering absentee ballots from people where he could, saying like, oh, I'll, I'll take that. I'll take the absentee ballot and turn it in for you. And then he'd write in the name of Mark Harris, the guy who hired him. That was outright, you know, that's the kind of voter fraud that really is these things people are talking about. But it was easily found out. In fact, it was found out by a local, like a local, he was a political science professor or something like that, a a much more competent one than the two at ODU. Or or he was just a political junkie or something. And he was looking at the results and goes, that doesn't make sense to me. That's not right. Those don't fit the pattern I know from those local areas. That's too many Republicans there. Something like that. And, he, and so he brought this to the attention of the state, and, they, and then local electoral officials started looking into it, and they audited it, and they, they fairly quickly uncovered this vote fraud scheme, and people were arrested, and fines were paid, and, things, and wrists were slapped. Huh. Vote impersonation fears, though, have, as you mentioned a minute ago, given rise to voter ID laws. Right. Or the push for voter ID laws. And in many states, the actual implementation of voter ID laws. There's no getting around it. This is not conspiracy theory. But the intent of voter ID laws is to suppress the vote. And specifically to suppress the vote of ethnic minorities and poor people who are less prone to, to vote consistently and maybe under, less understand the mechanisms of voting and things like that. Yeah. So are, are, are older people also, again, poorer people who may not have yeah. a driver's license? They, I mean, that's, that's middle class white people think, well, everybody has a driver's license. No, not everyone has yeah. a driver's license. Or an ID. Or it's an easy. state ID. You just go to the DMV. It's, but not, it's not easy in a lot I of places. Know. It's not easy to get those things, and it costs money that they don't. They have to spend on you know food and rent. Or, or like think about, and this is usually old people, very old people, mm-hmm. 
maybe somebody, you know, born at home in a very rural county in Kentucky, and they don't even have a birth certificate. So in order to get an ID, first they got to get a birth certificate, and it may be very onerous. They have to travel to the county or whatever where they were born. And they may not even live there anymore, Yeah. right? Yes. Or they have to find the stork that brought them to their parents. Yeah. That's not easy. Storks die. So... Really, honest, in, in a weird, ironic way, these voter ID laws really should be considered a form of voting fraud because the intent, in fact, is to suppress the vote, and that's not okay. It's electoral fraud. I think about the, the, the extent of, of voter fraud in a mass way to change an election, like, say, a presidential election. Yeah. Think about that. It would literally have yes. to involve... I don't know, thousands of people yeah. all scheming, doing uh, things you can't even imagine. That would thousands? Be it would take hundreds of, of people organizing it. And then, oh, yeah, yeah. And then hundreds of thousands or yeah. millions of people actually partaking it. Or, or, you know, whatever. Like, like, like Trump has said about the Chinese, you know, as if the Chinese are our biggest worry, not the Russians, in terms of, of voter, voter in interference with our elections. But... The Chinese are going to print millions of ballots. We'll talk about in a minute about why that's just that's literally just impossible to yeah. do. Some kind of a scheme that could actually impact a presidential election would would take monumental organization. There's a, a, a vast conspiracy that would be found out yesterday. Well, what about this? Potentially could more easily affect a large amount of voters or votes with machines. Yes, and computers. You know, hacking into computerized absolutely. systems. Absolutely, that's vastly more scary. Yeah. than this nonsense voter mail-in fraud or voter fraud that, that uh, yeah. Trump is talking about. And, and that, we haven't heard, I haven't heard much about that mm-hmm. this election because I guess we have bigger fish to fry, yeah. but it, you, you know, uh, it, it was certainly an issue in the last election. The Russians for sure tried to, to hack into the systems of several states. As far as we know, they were not successful, yeah. as far as we know. But yeah, that's, that's vastly more scary. And we still have lots and lots of these machines that don't even have a paper trail, meaning what's on those yeah. ones and zeros is all the recording of those votes at all. That's terrifying. Yeah. And they're not know, as secure as, as, yeah. as folks think they are. I know there's a website you can go to that tells you which states have paper yeah, trails that and should which be ones don't. Federal law. Yeah. And, as, and not just that, but the paper trails should be audited after every single election. Yeah. The uh, Also, it, to do like retail level voter fraud is, is really dumb. There are severe penalties. You can be fined up to $100,000 in prison for one to three years in the federal pen. That's not easy time. Bro, all right. <laughs> I should know. And what isn't it called, Club Fed? No. Well, it depends on which Fed they they send you to. States also have their own penalties, which are quite harsh, which we'll talk about in a second. In a horrifying uh, example of that. Well, in fact, let's talk about it right now. So even innocent errors can be just horrific as it pertains to voter fraud. Crystal Mason, she's a black woman in Texas, and in in 2016, her mother was just saying, you got to vote. You got to vote. This is an important election. And she just goes, finally. So she, okay, I'll do it. So she registered, and she tried to vote by provisional ballot because she had some question with the registration. So she actually wasn't even, her her provisional ballot actually wasn't even ultimately accepted. Yeah. But she attempted to vote. She filled out a provisional ballot in the November election of 2016. Problem was, she was on probation for tax fraud that she had served three years in uh, prison for Ooh. a few years before. So she 
got a call in February of 2017 from her probation office, officer and said, come down, meet me, we need to talk. She thought it was like a drug test or something like that, a random drug test, which was no problem because she'd put her life back together. She was supporting not only her kids, but her dead brother's kids, her nieces and nephews. She had a, a decent job. She was not taking any kind of drugs or alcohol. Uh, no problem. I'll go pass that test. Yeah. When she got there, uh, they had a, a law enforcement uh, officer put her in handcuffs and took her away and put her in jail. And mm. the reason was she had committed voter fraud. She had wow. tried to vote in the, in the November election. Again, unsuccessfully tried to vote in the November election. She, of course, said the obvious thing. I had no idea I was not allowed to vote. Indeed, uh, tons of people. I didn't know until recently that... It is state by state, by the way, uh, uh, yeah. that a lot of felons. And, and their response was, too bad, you should have known. And, oh, you must have known. It's common. They literally said it's common knowledge, which is no, it's not. blatantly not true. Or that we assumed you read all the fine print on your provisional ballot, and there is, wor- there is verbiage to that, uh, to, 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 that you can't vote if you're on probation right. in those, those ballots. No one, obviously, knowing no one agrees. That's like reading, you know, the do you agree yes. you have cookies on from every website? Well, so is her sentence more harsh because it was like a parole violation or a probation violation uh, as opposed to somebody else who made a mistake? Uh, well, I like mean, that's, voting in the wrong county yeah. or something like that. Yes, I'm sure it was. It was, and this was Texas. Yeah. G- gave her, they, so they put her on trial, tried her convicted her and sentenced her to five years in prison That's for ridiculous. Vo- trying to, to vote. vote. The Again, the state said it was common knowledge. She should have known. She appealed her sentence, and it was upheld <sighs> by a monstrous judge who basically said, who literally said, it's common. That's where the quote, common knowledge comes from. The judge says, oh, it's common knowledge. That's, I mean, yeah. that's, that's, he knows that's not true. She's going to appeal further. I don't think she's in, I think she's actually, I'm not, to to be honest, completely honest, if she's been, if she started her sentence yet or not. Oh. She she lost her appeal in May of this year. Oh, wow. So it's been going through the courts for a while now. So that's voter fraud. It's unbelievably uncommon. It's not a concern. But if you do it, don't yeah. <laughs> if you're thinking about it, and, and and no one, and it's incredibly rare. So. Well, because you, it is it possible for somebody to be registered in two different places at once? Like if you move, yes, nobody unregisters. Nope. Yeah, that's true. But again, you would have to do that with malice aforethought. You would have to go. I'm going to vote by absentee in Indiana, where I go to school at Notre Dame, whatever. And yeah. I'm also going to go, but I'm home at November or vice versa, or whatever. Yeah. I'm going to vote in my home district as well. No one's doing that. That's just not a concern. Or, or the voter ID people say, oh, there's all these dead people on. No shit. They're dead. They're not voting. You know why? Because they're dead. Well, And but no one's getting their absentee ballot or their mail-in ballot and, and voting. For. Again, that would, that would why take... Why not? If I got my mom's, my dead okay, mom's, my mom's One dead, person here or there. I, mean, I know. We know that happens. But again, yeah. it happens 0.0000001% of the time. Yeah. That's the kinds of things that do happen. We vote in the wrong place or you get your, or you vote for your dead mom. But they're incredibly rare. They're never systematic and they've never had any impact on the final tallies and they're, and they're, uh, when they do auditing, they, they often are able to find that out yeah. the vast majority of the time. It would take a mass conspiracy. Think about it. Yes. To somehow gather, find out all these dead people, gather yeah. that information. Think about that. You <laughs> yes. have to have personal, we'll talk a, a little bit about mail-in ballot and, and the hurdles you have to go to do your mail-in ballot. It's not yeah. easy. 
And if it was being done on a mass scale, there's zero likelihood it would not be found out. Well, that's what I, one thing I was going to say is, and I just found this out maybe in 2016 or maybe even 18, at least in California, and this is probably county by county, if your signature doesn't yes. match good enough mm-hmm. on your absentee val- ballot to the way, or your mail-in ballot to the way you, I guess, registered to vote. Yep. They don't count your ballot. Correct. We'll talk about that later on as well. I'm that's, super scared. That's that. vastly more likely. Yeah. And it happens far, far more often than actually illegal ballots getting yeah. through. So that leads us to the next question, which is about mail-in voting. Because in 2020, amongst COVID-19, the, I mean, I hear all day long yeah. talking about well, Trump is talking about yes, how yes. mail-in voting is so dangerous and it's rigged. Yes, and how and he makes a distinction between mail-in voting and absentee voting, which he says is a good thing. Yes, because he's voted absentee his whole life, pretty much. So what's the diff? Let's start with what is mail-in voting and how it works. It's pretty simple, actually. You register and request a mail ballot. Right. Right. You can do this through the mail, you can do it online, you can do it by the phone even, by the, by the telephone. You provide your name and address, and which is where the election officials then send your mail-in ballot or your absentee ballot, and we'll find out in a second. Of course, they're the exact same thing. You get a ballot with a secure envelope in the mail, and that you, so you fill out that ballot, you put that ballot in one envelope, seal it, and put that ballot that that sealed envelope with the ballot into another envelope and seal that and you sign across it with your signature and that ensures by the way privacy when they open that first secure envelope so that's it and a lot of people who are listening have probably done it we've done it yeah uh, that's how you do it we live in a state that doesn't require you to have an excuse for using the mail-in and so how is that different than the traditional absentee ballot, right? The classic traveling businessman right. or old person who was infirm and couldn't get to the ballot. The, the answer is, of course, it differs not at all. I want to make this totally clear. There is zero difference between an absentee ballot and a mail ballot. When Trump did that infamous tweet and said, you know, mail-in ballots are rigged, parentheses, not absentee ballots, those are great, whatever he said, that's ridiculous. But he has to say that because he had the foresight to realize, okay, people are going to retweet this and and mention how many times I've voted by absentee, which is almost every time he's voted. So, you know, making a distinction that absentee is okay and safe and mail-in is not exposed the fact that he knows he's lying about that because there's simply no there's no difference whatsoever. If there's any kind of a threat of fraud with mail-in voting, there is the exact threat with respect to absentees, right. period, yeah. full stop, end of discussion. If you don't like to hear that, too bad. So there's always been lots of mail-in voting. Tons of it. Even before it at, became common. As absentee yeah. ballot, exactly. I mean, that's what they do. That's the whole idea. And military. And, and military too, yeah. And expats. People mm-hmm. living in other countries yep. for work and stuff. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's fairly common. Yeah. It's not nearly as common as it is now. The difference, though, is that absentee ballots were you had to have an excuse. I'll be traveling. I live elsewhere. I'm right. stationed elsewhere. I'm too infirm, et cetera. 
that's changed over time. Now, in five states, mail-in voting is the primary means of voting. Effectively, Oregon was the first state to do this, but now uh, also Colorado, Washington, Utah, and Hawaii do this as well. So in those five states, you vote by mail, period. Yeah. And you have for years. In Oregon, it's been many elections now. And California's kind of going in that direction. California is strongly. California is what is called a no-excuse state. So it's not only. You can go vote, and they still do all the the voting stations and, and what have you. Yeah. Although it's getting harder and harder to do because no one wants to do that. And eventually, we're all going to be all mailing. Well, and now they mail everybody a ballot. Yes, they do. You can take it in. Well, they did this year. They're doing that this year. Before they it was did in 2018. In 2018, too. Not every state does that. Not every no excuse state does right. that. Uh, 35 states now either allow anyone to vote by mail, or they can. They're one of the five states that conduct all mail-in elections. Period. And that includes, by the way, you've heard sometimes criticized, well, that's just small states like Utah. No, it's California. Yeah. It's Georgia. Yes. It's North Carolina, Michigan, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Ohio, uh, Florida. Probably the only really large state that doesn't do that is New York, which has some oddly anachronistic voting laws. But that, that this year, that number is up to 41. So only about 54 million Americans live in states that won't have that. And, and we should be very worried about their ability to vote yeah. this coming November with not knowing what's going to happen with COVID-19. Yeah. So since 2000, there have been over 250 million mail ballots. In 2018, there were 31 million alone, and that represented 26% of all ballots cast. Yeah. So over a quarter of ballots in the last election in 18. We're mail-in ballots. Yeah. Not a whisper of fraud. The the only fraud case was in that major fraud was in that North Carolina Republican yeah. House primary uh, in, in spring of 2018. I mean, it's routine. It's the norm. It's how we vote. It's increasingly going to be how we vote. It's certainly how we need to be voting here in this year specifically. So Oregon did. Oregon has the most experience with mail-in. They've been doing it, I can't remember which year, but a long time, quite a while now. And in the 2000s, before 2010, I'm sure, they audit. They audit, they audit all the time. They check, they randomize, and they check samples, and they, and they audit these votes. Over the years, they've found about a dozen cases of mail-in voting fraud <laughs> since 2,000 out of uh, over 100 million wow. votes cast. That is point zero 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 one percent Six zeros and a one percent. That's why I said a minute ago, for Trump to say, even to suggest there's going to be some voting fraud or a significant amount, let alone there's going to be tons of it, and it's a certainty, is, I, I don't know how else to express it. It's, it's like beyond ridiculous, just yeah. absurd and ridiculous, and it's a knowing, nonsensical lie, and yet a lot of his folks are buying yeah. into it, as we'll find out in a little bit. So after you send in your mail in the ballot, that's not the end of it, though, right? Then the election officials have to receive the ballot. Sometimes they, in some states, they have to receive the ballot by election day, in other states, like California, they just, it just has to be postmarked and in a mailbox by election day, kind of right. like your taxes, I guess. And then and California was counting ballots for weeks after the 2018 congressional elections here. Uh, so that was, it could take a little while. Yeah. I mean, it's a huge, diverse state. And we had a ton of mail-in voting in 2018. We're going to have yeah. a ton more in, in 2020. So if, but if it's received legally and in time, they count your vote, and that's that. You, you, you've just simply voted a different mechanism than going to the local church or school and doing your thing in person. But the obvious question then is how do they ensure that it is a legal vote? And you know, how, how do they make sure? How, how is it true that fraud is so incredibly uncommon and rare? Yeah. 
Let's count the ways, shall we? Okay, let's. Only the states and their verified contractors can print ballots. And they do so on fraud-resistant paper. It's not quite as sophisticated as printing money, but it's, it's up there. It's not easy to do. Oh, okay. So that strike one against China printing lots of ballots, but believe me, there's, there's going to be several more strikes against that possibility. I, I didn't notice the ballot looking special. It's special. Huh. It's, it's got some I'm going to pay closer attention this year. You must write in personal identification information on your, your mail-in ballot. You have, to have, you have to know your name, your address, your birthday, your driver's license number, often the last four digits of your social security number. It's different state by state. Okay. But there's always some level of personal information you have to know in order to use that mail-in ballot. At the very least, you have to have access to it in someone's, you know, house. That's why sometimes Trump has said they'll be stealing ballots out of mailboxes and things like that. Because because you have to request that if you want to commit fraud, right? You'd you'd have to have this mass organization of, of I don't know people requesting tons of ballots to do that. They're gonna have to know something about a real live person right. with with that with personal data of all these people whose ballots they're requesting there to to commit this kind of mass fraud. You have to sign the ballot, and election officials, as you mentioned, do indeed look at these signatures. Believe me, they do. That's mm-hmm. one, of the, one of the reasons, by the way, it takes so long, well, is yeah. they're looking at those signatures, and they're checking those against the signatures that you sign when you ask for the ballot. If that signature is demonstrably different, and it's just human people doing this, I know. they'll toss it out. And this they do it all the time. Me. This it, it should bother everyone. It's outrageous. <laughs> like I said, there are vastly more. It's vastly more likely your vote gets thrown out wrongly yeah. than your illegal voter fraud vote gets counted. I don't know how the hell I signed I, when I, I registered I, I to no vote. Clue. Yeah, everybody no should sign in the most simplified form way possible. And, and there is evidence that, that that has been done invidiously in the past, and yeah. there's certainly potential for that. I mean, if, if if something to worry about, it should be. Will certain will some party try to throw out a yeah. ballot from an area they know is of the opposite party or something like that, yeah. or, or a name that they think mm, might be not voting for your guy, something like that? Will they be more likely? I think you do too. <laughs> will, will they be more likely to toss that out? Oh, the signature's not right. Boom, toss it. Yep. Maybe we there's something we should be worried about, and and we need a better system. But a better system makes sure people who should be voting are voting, not a, a system to make sure people aren't committing voter fraud. Yeah. We're not done yet. There are also barcodes, kind of like they use in supermarkets on mail-in ballots. Uh, the, like, you know, like the supermarket scanners that amazed George H.W. Bush when everyone else in the country knew exactly what they were. These let election officials track the ballot, where it's going, if it got to you, and it's received by them. So they can track your ballot like you know, FedEx wow. does your mail. Yeah. And by, by the way, this also allows them to eliminate duplicate ballots sent to the same person. Oh, okay, good. So you can't do that either. You can't say, oh, I didn't get it. Well, they say, yeah, you did, and you're not getting another one. So, Or, yeah, you did, because we have it already. Or, or, hey, look at this. We have two in your name. Let's look into that. Because in California, everybody gets that ballot mailed to them, but we also have voting centers. So let's say my ballot got lost in the mail. Mm -hmm. So my ballot with that barcode is lost, so I didn't send it in. Mm -hmm. But I can still go to a voting center, and they'll give me another ballot. Yes. And to if fill you're out. in Texas, you go to jail for five years for that. Some jurisdictions have secure drop-off locations as well, which takes out the post office, right. which is going to be a, a, a potential huge issue this year because of what's happening yeah. to the post office. Which is what we have. Yeah. 
And it also it makes it less likely that something's going to tamper with your ballot. It's, it's about ballot safety, so that's another yeah. uh, way, another another layer of safety for that ballot. That's what I do. I don't mail our ballots. I take them in. Well, thank you. Appreciate that. Wait, you take mine in? Uh oh, we shouldn't admit that on the air. No, there's a place on the ba- on the envelope where you sign. <laughs> that's what that I do. You're allowing me fact. to turn in your ballot. Now I remember. Yeah. Officials also audit the results of the election night to detect any kind of irregularities, and if they detect that, they'll investigate yeah. them. So, and there are things like, like the numbers don't add up, or something's wrong with that jurisdiction. Like, the, like if the vote tally wasn't didn't seem right, you know that you know past history. So, if they detect irregularities, they'll look into it, and they're far, yeah. far more likely to find out if there was any kind of voting fraud. There. Again, that's how they found out yeah. the, the North Carolina case, essentially. Yeah. And what are the results ultimately of mail-in voting? That's also a very simple answer: more voting. There's no question. Data is in. More people vote when you're, everybody's allowed a no-excuse mail-in ballot. It's just easier yeah. for people to do this. Montana allowed mail-in voting for their primary in this year because of COVID-19 and had a, had a 63% turnout for their primary, shattering wow. the record. Uh, New York did the same thing and also had a record number of, of turnout because of, of the, and those were states that had never allowed mail-in voting. So they did it very quickly. I was going to say. And they did yeah, it very successfully. They really did get it together pretty fast. Yeah. Okay, that's it for part one of U.S. presidential elections. Part two of stupid questions about U.S. presidential elections. You know, you, you can go ahead and listen to it right now. We're going to talk a lot about the Electoral College, what maybe it can and can't do, what happens if there's not a majority. And then we get a little controversial and talk about what happens if a president decides he wants to be president still, even if he loses an election. So please give that a listen. Talk to you later.